Chapter Ten of Daniel Boone by John S. C. Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter Ten, British Allies. It was in the autumn of the year 1780 that Daniel Boone, with his family, returned to Boonesborough. A year before, the legislature of Virginia had recognized essentially what is now Kentucky as one of the counties of Virginia and had established the town of Boonesborough as its capital. By this act, Daniel Boone was named one of the trustees or selectmen. Town lots were ordered to be surveyed, and a very liberal grant of land was conferred upon everyone who would erect a house at least sixteen feet square with either brick, stone, or dirt chimney. For some reason, Colonel Boone declined this office. It is probable that he was disgusted by his own experience in the civil courts. There was little danger now of an attack upon Boonesborough by the Indians. There were so many settlements around it that no foe could approach without due warning and without encountering serious opposition. On the 6th of October, Daniel Boone, with his brother Squire, left the fort alone for what would seem to be an exceedingly imprudent excursion, so defenseless to the Blue Licks. They reached the licks in safety. While there, they were discovered by a party of Indians and were fired upon from ambush. Squire Boone was instantly killed and scalped. Daniel, heart-stricken by the loss of his beloved brother, fled like a deer, pursued by the whole band, filling the forest with their yells like a pack of hounds. The Indians had a very powerful dog with them, who, with unerring scent, followed closely in the trail of the fugitive. For three miles this unequal chase continued. The dog, occasionally embarrassed in his pursuit, would be delayed for a time in regaining the trail. The speed of Boone was such that the foremost of the savages was left far behind. He then, as the dog came bounding on, stopped, took deliberate aim, and shot the brute. Boone was still far from the fort but he reached it in safety, leaving upon the Indians the impression that he bore a charmed life. He was very deeply afflicted by the death of his brother. Squire was the youngest of the sons, and the tie which bound the brothers together was unusually tender and confidential. They had shared in many perilous adventures, and for months had dwelt entirely alone in the wilderness, far away from any other society. The winter of 1780 was one of the saddest in the annals of our country. The colonial army, everywhere defeated, was in the most deplorable state of destitution and suffering. Our frontiers were most cruelly ravaged by a barbarian foe. To add to all of this, the winter was severely cold beyond any precedent. The crops had been so destroyed by the enemy that many of the pioneers were compelled to live almost entirely upon the flesh of the buffalo. Virginia, in extending her jurisdiction over her western lands of Kentucky, now, for the sake of a more perfect military organization, divided the extensive region into three counties, Fayette, Lincoln, and Jefferson. General Clark was made commander-in-chief of the Kentucky militia, Daniel Boone was commissioned as lieutenant colonel of Lincoln County. The immigration into the state at this time may be inferred from the fact that the Court of Commissioners to examine land titles, at the close of its session of seven months, had granted 3,000 claims. 
its meetings had been held mainly at boonesborough and its labors terminated in april seventeen eighty during the spring three hundred barges loaded with emigrants were floated down the ohio to the falls at what is now louisville as we have stated the winter had been one of the most remarkable on record from the middle of november to the middle of february the ground was covered with snow and ice without a thaw the severity of the cold was terrible nearly all unprotected animals perished even bears buffaloes wolves and wild turkeys were found frozen in the woods the starving wild animals often came near the settlement for food for seventy-five years the winter of seventeen eighty was an era to which the old men referred though the indians organized no formidable raids they were very annoying no one could safely wander any distance from the forts in march seventeen eighty one several bands entered jefferson county and by lying in ambush killed four of the settlers captain whittaker with fifteen men went in pursuit of them he followed their trail to the banks of the ohio supposing they had crossed he and his party embarked in canoes boldly to continue the pursuit into the indian country they had scarcely pushed a rod from the shore when hideous yells rose from the indians in ambush and a deadly fire was opened upon the canoes nine of the pioneers were instantly killed or wounded the savages having accomplished this feat fled into the wilderness where the party thus weakened in numbers could not pursue them a small party of settlers had reared their log huts near the present site of shelbyville squire boone had been one of the prominent actors in the establishment of this little colony alarmed by the menaces of the savages these few settlers decided to remove to a more secure station on bears creek on their way they were startled by the war-whoop of they knew not how many indians concealed in ambush and a storm of bullets fell upon them killing and wounding many of their number the miscreants scarcely waiting for the return fire fled with yells which resounded through the forest leaving their victims to the sad task of burying the dead and nursing the wounded colonel floyd collected twenty-five men to pursue them the wary indians nearly two hundred in number drew them into an ambush and opened upon the party a deadly fire which almost instantly killed half their number the remainder with great difficulty escaped leaving their dead to be mutilated by the scalping knife of the savage almost every day brought tidings of similar disasters the indians emboldened by these successes seemed to rouse themselves to a new determination to exterminate the whites the conduct of the british government in calling such wretches to their alliance in war with the colonies created the greatest exasperation thomas jefferson gave expression to the public sentiment in the declaration of independence in which he says an arraignment of king george the third he has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages sexes and conditions there were two wretched men official agents of the british government who were more savage than the savages themselves one of them a vagabond named simon girty had joined the indians by adoption he had not only acquired their habits but had become their leader in the most awful scenes of ferocity 
He was a Tory, and as such was the bitterest foe of the colonists, who were struggling for independence. The other, Colonel McGee, with a little more respectability of character, was equally fiend-like in exciting the Indians to the most revolting barbarities. Thus incited and sustained by British authority, the Indians kept all the settlers in Kentucky in constant alarm. Instigated by the authorities at Detroit, the warriors of five tribes assembled at Old Chillicothe to organize the most formidable expedition which had as yet invaded Kentucky. These tribes were the Shawnees on the Little Miami, the Cherokees on the Tennessee, the Wyandots on the Sandusky, the Tawas on the Maumee, and the Delawares on the Muskingum. Their choicest warriors, five hundred in number, rendezvoused at Old Chillicothe. This Indian village was built in the form of a square, enclosing a large area. Some of their houses were of logs, some of bark, some of reeds filled in with clay. Boone says that the Indians concentrated their utmost force and vengeance upon this expedition, hoping to destroy the settlements and depopulate the country at a single blow. Not far from Boonesboro, in the same valley of Kentucky, there was a small settlement called Bryant's Station. William Bryant, the founder, had married a sister of Colonel Boone. On the 15th of August, a war party of five hundred Indians and Canadians, under the leadership of Simon Gurdy, appeared before this little cluster of log huts, each of which was, of course, bulletproof. The settlers fought heroically. Gurdy was wounded, and thirty of his band were killed, while the garrison lost but four. The assailing party, thus disappointed in their expectation of carrying the place by storm, and fearing the arrival of reinforcements from other settlements, hastily retired. Colonel Boone, hearing of the attack, hastened to the rescue, joining troops from several of the adjacent forts. The party consisted of 180 men, under the leadership of Colonel Todd, one of nature's noblemen. Colonel Boone seems to have been second in command. Two of his sons, Israel and Samuel, accompanied their father upon this expedition. The Indians, led by British officers, were far more to be dreaded than when left to their own cunning, which was often childish. As the little band of pioneers, rushing to the rescue, approached Bryant Station and were informed of the retreat of the invaders, a council of war was held to decide whether it were best for a hundred and eighty men to pursue five hundred Indians and Canadians through a region where every mile presented the most favorable opportunities for concealment and ambush. Gertie was a desperado who was to be feared as well as hated. Contrary to the judgment of both Colonels Todd and Boone, it was decided to pursue the Indians. There was no difficulty in following the trail of so large a band, many of whom were mounted. Their path led almost directly north to the Licking River and then followed down its banks towards the Ohio. As the pursuers were cautiously advancing, they came to a remarkable bend in the stream, where there was a large and open space with prairie grass very high. A well-trampled buffalo track led through this grass, which was almost like a forest of reeds. Along this street, the Indians had retreated. The scouts who had been sent forward to explore returned with the report that there were no signs of Indians, and yet four hundred savages, 
had so adroitly concealed themselves that their line really extended from bank to bank of the river, where it bent like a horseshoe before them. The combined cunning of the Indian, and the intelligence of their white leaders, was now fatally enlisted for the destruction of the settlers. A hundred and eighty men were to be caught in a trap, while five hundred demons prepared to shoot them down. As soon as Colonel Todd's party passed the neck of this bend, the Indians closed in behind them, rose from their concealment, and with terrific yells opened upon them a still more terrific fire. The pioneers fought with the courage of desperation. At the first discharge, nearly one-third of Colonel Todd's party fell dead or wounded. Struck fatally by several bullets, Colonel Todd himself fell from his horse, drenched with blood. While a portion of the Indians kept up with fire, the others, with hideous yells, sprang forward with tomahawk and scalping knife, completing their fiend-like work. It was a scene of awful confusion and dismay. The survivors, fighting every step of the way, retreated towards the river, for there was no escape back through their thronging foes. Colonel Boone's two sons fought by the side of their father. Samuel, the younger, struck by a bullet, was severely but not mortally wounded. Israel, his second son, fell dead. The unhappy father took his dead boy upon his shoulders to save him from the scalping knife. As he tottered beneath the bleeding body, an Indian of Herculean stature with uplifted tomahawk rushed upon him. Colonel Boone dropped the body of his son, shot the Indian through the heart, and seeing the savages rushing upon him from all directions, fled leaving the corpse of his boy to its fate. Being intimately acquainted with the ground, he plunged into a ravine, baffling several parties who pursued him, swam across the river, and entering the forest succeeded in escaping from his foes, and at length, safely by a circuitous route, returned to Bryant's station. In the meantime, the scene of tumult and slaughter was awful beyond all description. Victors and vanquished were blended together upon the banks of the stream. In this dreadful conflict, there were four Indians to each white man. There was a narrow ford at the spot, but the whole stream seemed clogged, some swimming and some trying to wade, while the exultant Indians shot and tomahawked without mercy. Those who succeeded in crossing the river, leaving the great buffalo track which they had been following, plunged into the thickets, and though vigorously pursued by the Indians, most of them eventually reached the settlements. In this dreadful disaster, the colonists lost sixty men in killed, and seven were taken prisoners. The Indians, in counting up their loss, found that sixty-four were missing. In accordance with their barbaric custom, they selected in vengeance four of the prisoners and put them to death by the most terrible tortures which savage ingenuity could devise. Had Colonel Boone's advice been followed, this calamity might have been avoided. Still, characteristically, he uttered not a word of complaint. In his comments upon the event, he says, I cannot reflect upon this dreadful scene, but sorrow fills my heart. A zeal for the defense of their country led these heroes to the scene of action, though with a few men to attack a powerful army of experienced warriors. When we gave way, they pursued us with the utmost eagerness, and in every quarter spread destruction. The river was difficult to cross, 
and many were killed in the flight, some just entering the river, some in the water, others after crossing and ascending the cliffs. Some escaped on horseback, a few on foot, and being dispersed everywhere in a few hours, brought the melancholy news of this unfortunate conflict to Lexington. The reader may guess what sorrow filled the hearts of the inhabitants, exceeding anything I am able to describe. Being reinforced, we returned to bury the dead, and found their bodies strewed everywhere, cut and mangled in a dreadful manner. This mournful scene exhibited a horror almost unparalleled. Some torn and eaten by wild beasts, those in the river eaten by fishes, all in such a putrefied condition that no one could be distinguished from another. This battle of blue licks, as it is called, occupies one of the most mournful pages in the history of Kentucky. The escape of Boone adds another to the extraordinary adventures of this chivalric and now sorrow-stricken man. Colonel Boone communicated an official report to the governor of Virginia, Benjamin Harrison, father of William Henry Harrison, subsequently President of the United States. In this report, it is noticeable that Boone makes no allusion whatever to his own services. This modest document throws such light upon the character of this remarkable man and upon the peril of the times that it merits full insertion here. It is as follows. Boone's Station, Fayette County, August 30th, 1782. Sir, present circumstances of affairs cause me to write to your excellency as follows. On the sixteenth instant, a large body of Indians, with some white men, attacked one of our frontier stations, known as Bryant's Station. The siege continued from about sunrise until two o'clock of the next day, when they marched off. Notice being given to neighboring stations, we immediately raised 181 horsemen, commanded by Colonel John Todd, including some of the Lincoln County militia, and pursued about 40 miles. After a brief account of the battle which we have already given, he continues, Afterwards, we were reinforced by Colonel Logan, which made our force 460 men. We marched again to the battleground, but finding the enemy had gone, we proceeded to bury the dead. We found forty-three on the ground, and many lay about which we could not stay to find, hungry and weary as we were, and dubious that the enemy might not have gone off quite. By the sign, we thought that the Indians exceeded four hundred, while the whole of the militia of the county does not amount to more than one hundred and thirty. From these facts, your Excellency may form an idea of our situation. I know that your own circumstances are critical, but are we to be wholly forgotten? I hope not. I trust that about five hundred men may be sent to our assistance immediately. If these shall be stationed as our county lieutenant shall deem necessary, it may be the means of saving our part of the country. But if they are placed under the direction of General Clark, they will be of little or no service to our settlement. The falls lie one hundred miles west of us, and the Indians northeast, while our men are frequently called to protect them. I have encouraged the people in this county all that I could, but I can no longer justify them or myself to risk our lives here, under such extraordinary hazards. The inhabitants of this county are very much alarmed at the thoughts of the Indians bringing another campaign into our country this fall. If this should be the case, it will break up these settlements. 
I hope, therefore, that your excellency will take the matter into your consideration and send us some relief as quick as possible. These are my sentiments, without consulting any person. Colonel Logan will I expect immediately send you an express, by whom I humbly request your excellency's answer. In the meantime, I remain yours, etc., Daniel Boone. General Clark, who was the military leader of Kentucky under the colonial government, was established at the Falls. The British authorities held their headquarters at Detroit, from which post they were sending out their Indian allies in all directions to ravage the frontiers. General Clark was a man of great energy of character, and he was anxious to organize an expedition against Detroit. With this object in view, he had by immense exertions assembled a force of nearly 2,000 men. Much to his chagrin, he received orders to remain at the falls for the present, to protect the frontiers then so severely menaced. But when the tidings reached him of the terrible disaster at Blue Lick, he resolved to pursue the Indians and punish them with the greatest severity. The exultant savages had returned to Old Chillicothe and had divided their spoil and their captives. Colonel Boone was immediately sent for to take part in this expedition. Clark's army crossed the Ohio and marching very rapidly up the banks of the Little Miami, arrived within two miles of Chillicothe before they were discovered. On perceiving the enemy, the Indians scattered in all directions. Men, women, and children fled into the remote forest, abandoning their homes and leaving everything behind them. The avenging army swept the valley with fire and ruin, their corn just ripening, and upon which they mainly relied for their winter supply of food, was utterly destroyed. Every tree which bore any fruit was felled, and five of their towns were laid in ashes. The trail of the army presented a scene of utter desolation. The savages were alike astonished and dismayed. They had supposed that the white men, disheartened by their dreadful defeat at the Blue Lick, would abandon the country. Instead of that, with amazing recuperative power, they had scarcely reached their homes ere another army, utterly resistless in numbers, is burning their towns and destroying their whole country. This avenging campaign so depressed the Indians that they made no farther attempt for the organized invasion of Kentucky. The termination of the war with England also deprived them of their military resources, and left them to their own unaided and unintelligent efforts. Still miserable bands continued prowling around, waylaying and murdering the lonely traveler, setting fire to the solitary hut, and inflicting such other outrages as were congenial with their cruel natures. It thus became necessary for the pioneers always to live with the rifle in hand. Colonel Boone had become especially obnoxious to the Indians. Twice he had escaped from under them, under circumstances which greatly mortified their vanity. They recognized the potency of his rifle in the slaughter of their own warriors at the Blue Lick, and they were well aware that it was his sagacity which led the army of General Clark in its avenging march through their country. It thus became with them an object of intense desire to take him prisoner, and, had he been taken, he would doubtless have been doomed to the severest torture they could inflict. 
Mr. Peck, in his interesting life of Boone, gives the following account of one of the extraordinary adventures of this man, which he received from the lips of Colonel Boone himself. On one occasion, four Indians suddenly appeared before his cabin and took him prisoner. Though the delicacy of Colonel Boone's organization was such that he could never himself relish tobacco in any form, he still raised some for his friends and neighbors, and for what were then deemed the essential rites of hospitality. As a shelter for curing the tobacco, he had built an enclosure of rails about a dozen feet in height and covered with canes and grass. Stalks of tobacco are generally split and strung on sticks about four feet in length. The ends of these are laid on poles, placed across the tobacco house, and in tiers, one above another, to the roof. Boone had fixed his temporary shelter in such a manner as to have three tiers. He had covered the lower tier, and the tobacco had become dry. When he entered the shelter for the purpose of removing the sticks to the upper tier, preparatory to gathering the remainder of the crop. He had hoisted up the sticks from the lower to the second tier, and was standing on the poles which supported it, while raising the sticks to the upper tier, when four stout Indians, with guns, entered the low door and called him by name. "'Now, Boone, we got you. You no get away more. We carry you off to Chillicothe this time. You no cheat us any more.' Boone looked down upon their upturned faces saw their loaded guns pointed at his breast, and recognizing some of his old friends, the Shawanese, who had made him prisoner near Blue Licks in 1778, coolly and pleasantly responded, "'Ah, old friends, glad to see you.' Perceiving that they manifested impatience to have him come down, he told them he was quite willing to go with them, and only begged that they would wait where they were and watch him closely until he could finish removing the tobacco." While thus parleying with them, Boone inquired earnestly respecting his old friends in Chillicothe. He continued for some time to divert the attention of these simple-minded men by allusions to past events with which they were familiar, and by talking of his tobacco, his mode of curing it, and promising them an abundant supply. With their guns in their hands, however, they stood at the door of the shed, grouped closely together so as to render his escape apparently impossible. In the meantime, Boone carefully gathered his arms full of the long, dry tobacco leaves, filled with pungent dust, which would be blinding and stifling as the most powerful snuff, and then, with a leap from his station twelve feet high, came directly upon their heads, filling their eyes and nostrils, and so bewildering and disabling them for the moment that they lost all self-possession and all self-control. Boone, agile as a deer, darted out at the door, and in a moment was in his bullet-proof log hut, which to him was an impregnable citadel. Loopholes guarded every approach. The Indians could not show themselves without exposure to certain death. They were too well acquainted with the unerring aim of Boom's rifle to venture within its range. Keeping the log cabin between them and their redoubtable foe, the baffled Indians fled into the wilderness. Colonel Boone related this adventure with great glee, imitating the gestures of the bewildered Indians. He said that, notwithstanding his narrow escape, he could not resist the temptation, as he reached the door of his cabin, to look around to witness the effect of his achievement. The Indians, coughing, sneezing, 
blinded and almost suffocated by the tobacco dust, were throwing out their arms and groping about in all directions, cursing him for a rogue and calling themselves fools. End of chapter 10